Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Maybe we could start with why COVID-19 and how you've become involved in it. I'm Kui Yong. I'm a haematologist at UCH. I specialise in multiple myeloma. In haematology, the COVID pandemic has made a great difference to what we do with our patients and how we manage them. I guess one of the major changes has been the move away from face-to-face clinics and telemedicine. And in some areas, this has worked really well. Patients like it. They like being able to stay at home. They feel safe. And of course, all the government advice about shielding uh, is in line with telemedicine, keeping patients at home. Have there been any challenges with doing that telemedicine in terms of like not actually having a patient there in front of you? There are, of course, plenty of challenges. We're used to being able to see our patients. We're used to plenty of nonverbal cues. And we're also used to having their carers and their next of kin come to clinic with them. This is not quite so easy to manage in telemedicine. Patients can put the consultation on speakerphone, but it's not exactly the same. And you lose completely the nonverbal cues. When there is a silence, you don't understand what the silence is about. Whereas silences in a face-to-face consultation can be very useful because it gives you time to think, to gather your thoughts and to give the patient time to respond and react. Yeah. But the other issue about the COVID-19 pandemic is that we were concerned, of course, with, about our patients, about what would happen to our patients if they got infected, how to deal with them and how to treat them. And I suppose that's how I got involved initially in the COVID-19 research efforts here at UCH. And in the early days, it became clear to us that COVID-19 in the vast majority of patients is indeed a mild illness. But in a small minority, probably maybe 10, 15%, it progresses through a second stage past the first viral illness stage to what is called hyperinflammation. So during viral infections, the immune system responds to try and clear the virus. It also tries to minimize the the damage caused. And the first arm of the immune system that gets activated is complement. So complement is a very ancient defense mechanism that, that we have evolved over millennia to deal with pathogens. And its main role is not only to kill the virus, but to kill the virally infected cells, but also to orchestrate the whole immune response that brings in all the other immune cells, the macrophages, the neutrophils, the lymphocytes. And this usually works well and is very successful. The key thing about the immune response is that it's it's the idea of a cascade, so that from one small initiating event, you get a whole host, a, a big concerted response of the immune system, and that's very successful. Occasionally, it can be its demise. If you think about having to press the right buttons, the wrong buttons are pressed and they stay pressed for far too long. And so the complement system, which activates all the other immune cells and brings in all the inflammatory cells like neutrophils and monocytes, it needs to shut down after a point. And if it doesn't shut down, this becomes uncontrolled. And then the other cells come in and they secrete more cytokines as well. The key thing about complement is that it is a series of enzyme reactions. 
and each enzyme down the pathway has its own uh, particular function. But every time the enzyme is activated, it cleaves off a little mediator, and that's a complement mediator, and that mediator brings in more cells. So at every step of the pathway, more messengers get sent out, as it were. And the more messengers you have, the more immune cells are going to arrive on the scene. The difference between COVID-19 and other examples of hyperinflammation that we could talk about, like, like secondary HLH, or cytokine release syndrome in CAR T therapy is that in COVID-19, it is centered on the lungs. The hyperinflammation is focused and centered on the lungs. And that gives it its own peculiar flavor. And it also presents its own unique challenges. And that is why oxygenation is such a challenge and becomes obvious so early and is what kills patients because they can't oxygenate their lungs while this great inflammatory process is occurring. The other major point about the inflammatory process is that when the wrong buttons get pressed, the virus can't get cleared. It's because the wrong bits of the immune system are activated and drive further inflammation so that the right type of immune response that is meant to kill the virus can't act or can't act effectively. So the people who become very ill with COVID-19 hyperinflammation have two problems. They have the hyperinflammation, but they're also unable to clear the virus. So the virus continues to infect the, the cells that line the lungs. So the COVID-19 virus infects what we call the pneumocytes, the alveolar epithelial cells. These are the cells that line the air sacs in the lung that are essential for oxygenation. When these cells get infected, they release some of these mediators, attract the complement, and the whole process gets going. But you can imagine that if you can't clear virus, then this infective process happens again and again and again, and the lung can't regenerate new alveolar cells. So this is probably what sets it aside from other inflammatory conditions that we're very familiar with, like secondary HLH or cytokine release syndrome in CAR-T therapy. One thing people do ask is, why is it like ARDS? Okay. Is COVID-19 hyperinflammation like ARDS? There are some similarities between COVID-19 hyperinflammation and ARDS because they are essentially pathological processes that are centered on the lung and are caused by, by damage to lung tissue and therefore inability to oxygenate. But I think the, one of the differences is that in COVID-19, there are other systemic processes that at play. And one of the key processes that we don't understand too well is hypercoagulation why some patients just activate the coagulation system and it's impossible to anticoagulate them. I think it's an effect on the endothelium and I think it is endothelial damage that it is, the heart, it is at the heart of a lot of the pathogenesis of COVID-19 hyperinflammation and the ensuing ARDS. So some people still call it ARDS because at the end, when these patients are very sick, ventilated on ITU, they Same look probably well. just like, yes, an ARDS patient yeah. and the ITU team will treat them the same way. And that is probably because we don't know how to treat COVID-19 patients any differently. So these patients with severe COVID, what have been some of the things we think might help this patient group? The evidence about the use of steroids in these patients shows some benefit. Are there other drugs that might be able to sort of help with the hyperinflammation? So the growing understanding that the pathogenesis of COVID hyperinflammation and severe 
COVID-19 pneumonia is down to hyperinflammation has led people to look at and to investigate and to carry trials into all the agents that we know from our experience can modulate the immune response, what we call immunosuppressive, immunomodulatory drugs. And these can range from steroids to anti-cytokines, antibodies against cytokines. So for example, the Oxford Recovery trial included dexamethasone, also included an antiviral agent, and also hydroxychloroquine, um, some antibiotic, an antibiotic called azithromycin. But there are several trials globally all over the world trialing anti-inflammatory agents. So antibodies against the cytokines that we know are raised in patients with this syndrome. So the dating from the literature very early on that came out from China, we know that certain cytokines are raised in the blood of patients who suffer severe COVID-19 pneumonia. Interleukin-1, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, we have agents against all these factors. We use them, and we often use them in clinical practice, in rheumatology, in inflammation, and very much in hematology. And we also use agents that block the signaling pathways of these cytokines. One of these agents is a JAK2 inhibitor, ruxolitinib, and so we have the RuxCOVID study. There have been several studies targeting interleukin-6, for instance. So interleukin-6 is kind of considered to be at the cornerstone of, of inflammation. And so it's targeting interleukin-6 has proved very successful for treating cytokine release syndrome in CAR-T therapy. Tocilizumab is only one of the agents. There are several others, cerilumab, siltuximab, and these are all in clinical trials that I hope they will report in the next month or so. The other agent, of course, is anakinra, which is an anti-AL1 antagonist. Now, unlike tocilizumab, it is not an antibody. Um, it is actually a small molecule inhibitor, so it doesn't stay very long in the bloodstream, and so it has to be given more frequently. There is a difference between these agents in terms of how they're administered, the convenience of administration, and also people are beginning to understand whether they can get into the lungs where the trouble is. So a small molecule inhibitor like anakinra, for example, might be able to penetrate the tissues into the lung where the damage is happening, whereas a big monoclonal antibody may have more trouble getting in there. Anakinra is often used in the treatment of secondary HLH, and we have a big interest in that here at UCH, led by Jessica Manson. And Anakinra is entering phase three studies in COVID-19 pneumonia. There's no doubt there's a group of patients who develop COVID-19 pneumonia who have an HLH-type picture. Not all of them do, but this HLH-type picture is characterized by high levels of ferritin. So these patients may respond, and indeed, um, they probably will respond if you get the right patient and you treat them at the right time. So timing is key. I guess if you're thinking of intercepting the inflammatory process, you need to treat at a point before it gets out of control. So that's the whole philosophy, the whole concept of these clinical studies. But because we don't understand the kinetics or the complexities of the process, and we don't have good enough biomarkers, we cannot carry out trials on specific patient groups. And that's why the Oxford Recovery Study had to recruit thousands of patients because they had to recruit everybody. And what they published recently was very interesting. And their results indicate that the use of dexamethasone 
what we in hematology call low-dose dexamethasone. It's not really low-dose steroids, but it's 6 milligrams a day for up to 10 days. Reduces the mortality rate in patients who are on mechanical ventilation, but also patients who are on oxygen support. But paradoxically, and on the other hand... Is this any level of oxygen support? They don't do specify okay. what level of oxygen support in the paper that I've read, and perhaps it will be evident in the full protocol. But I think the idea of big platform studies like this is not to collect lots of detail and granularity because that makes it more difficult to run the study. I think the Oxford Recovery Study, being a platform study um, that was aimed at rolling out quickly and recruiting thousands of patients very quickly so that we could have an answer. So I think the level of oxygen support was oxygen support short of invasive mechanical ventilation. And for these patients, they had something like a 20% reduction in hazard of death. Whereas for patients who are on mechanical ventilation, they had a 35% reduction in risk of death, which is significant. On the other hand, patients who didn't need oxygen may have fared worse on dexamethasone. So if you look at the curves, the survival curves, the survival curve for patients who received dexamethasone versus those who didn't, and these were patients not on oxygen, they may have done slightly worse in terms of death, although this was not significant. So these are the kind of nuances that we are beginning to understand about how to manage our patients with COVID-19 and to understand the pathogenic process. The other thing is the patients who were not on oxygen were older, significantly older. And so perhaps you might infer from that that giving low-dose dexamethasone to older group of patients with comorbidities may not be advantageous, especially if they were not oxygen-dependent and not at such a respiratory failure level as some of the others. But they're very interesting uh, results, and yeah. I think it possibly is the first large phase 3 study with good evidence for the benefit of an intervention in COVID-19. I think in the next few weeks and months, we look forward to receiving the results of randomised studies. These are randomised studies conducted by cooperative academic groups in Europe and the States, and also the company-led studies, particularly those into the anti-IL-6 agents like tocilizumab, but also there will be studies on anakinra, which will be published by some of the European groups. And that might give us some kind of a clue as to where to go, but I think we're still quite early in understanding how to manage these patients. <laughs>